Galatians chapter 5. Please open your Bibles. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. It's where we'll begin. But I say walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Oh, how we need to hear those words today. So I'll read it again. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. Note, by the way, that each time he doesn't say, Flesh sets its desire against spirit and spirit against flesh. But the spirit, Paul is talking about the Holy Spirit of the living God. In verse 19, he says, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, And things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. I wouldn't want to live in the mid to late 1800s, but I wouldn't mind vacationing there. I'd love to take a couple weeks and go back and just be there in the days of Charles Haddon Spurgeon on the other side of the pond, and D.L. Moody on this side of the pond, and the awakenings and the revivals and the things that were taking place at that time, and the, and the preaching that was so austere and marvelous and, and informed. I'd love to just experience a little of that. D.L. Moody in America, C.H. Spurgeon in London, and they were contemporaries and they had great respect one for another. In June of 1875, in fact... Spurgeon delivered an unusual sermon at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. The sermon was entitled, Messrs. Moody and Sankey Defended, or A Vindication of the Doctrine of Justification by Faith. Can you imagine a title like that on one of our signboards in front of a church today? (laughs) It answered the profoundly successful evangelistic ministry of D.L. Moody and Ira Sankey. Moody, the great American preacher, and Sankey, the amazing American hymn writer, and they teamed up and came to London, and the reaction, the response across England was absolutely stunning. Crowds of upwards of 30, 40, 50,000 people turning out just to hear this man speak and to sing these songs of praise. In Spurgeon's text for that sermon in defense of Messrs. Moody and Sankey, he took Galatians 5.24 in the King James, They that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. I want to read you just a little bit of that sermon, because I think it's applicable to what we're talking about and will talk about today. 
Spurgeon said, from several quarters we have heard lately intensely earnest objections to the matter and tenor of the preaching of the evangelists from America who have been working among us. Of course, their teaching as well as our own is open to honest judgment and they, we feel sure, would rather court than shun investigation of the most searching sort. Criticisms upon their style of speaking and singing and so on are so unimportant that nobody has any need to answer them. After all, wisdom is justified of her children. It is a waste of time to discuss mere matters of taste, for no men, however excellent, can please all, or even become equally adapted to all constitutions and conditions. Therefore, we may let such remarks pass without further observation. But upon the matter of doctrine very much has been said, and said also with a good deal of temper, not always of the best. What has been affirmed by a certain class of public writers comes to this, if you boil it down, that it really cannot do any good to tell men that simply by believing in Jesus Christ, they will be saved. And that it may do people very serious injury if we lead them to imagine that they have undergone a process called conversion and are now safe for life. We are told by these gentlemen who ought to know, for they speak very positively, that the doctrine of immediate salvation through faith in Christ Jesus is a very dangerous one, and it will certainly lead to the deterioration of the public morality, since men will not be likely to set store by the practical virtues when faith is lifted up to so very lofty a position. If it were so, it were a grievous fault, and woe to those who led men into it. That is not the fact, Spurgeon says, we are sure. But meanwhile, let us survey the field of battle. Will you please to notice that this is no quarrel between these gentlemen and our friends, Messrs. Moody and Sankey alone. It is a quarrel between these objectors and the whole of us who preach the gospel. For different or differing as we do in the style of preaching... We are all ready to set our seal to the clearest possible statement that men are saved by faith in Jesus Christ and saved the moment they believe. We all hold and teach that there is such a thing as conversion and that when men are converted, they will become other men than they were before and a new life begins which will culminate in eternal glory. We are not so dastardly as to allow our friends to stand alone in the front of the battle to be looked upon as peculiar persons holding strange notions from which the rest of us dissent. So far as salvation through faith and the atoning blood is concerned, they preach nothing but what we have preached all our lives. They preach nothing but what has the general consent of Protestant Christendom. Let that be known to all and let the archers shoot at us all alike. And so this great defense offered up. The fourth and final point of Spurgeon's sermon is this, just the point. The Holy Spirit is with the gospel and where he is, holiness must be promoted. Black could just sit and listen to Spurgeon all day long. Hence my desire to go vacation in 1875. And where the moral excellence of the fruit of the Spirit is desired, this must be understood. Where the Holy Spirit is, holiness must be promoted. He will promote it. Where a person is saved, converted by being born again of the Spirit, the Spirit goes to work. 
and moves in us and through us and yes, for us. That's part of the deal. And yet somehow we have watered it down. In our age, we've taken the other side that we say, oh yes, people are saved the moment they believe. But after that salvation, the Christian life is is a mess of failures and falling downs and us saying, but that's fine. That's no big deal. We're all sinners, right? We all struggle. Until we open the Scriptures and we are reminded once again of holiness. And the value of holiness And the fact, as Spurgeon said, that where the Holy Spirit is, holiness must be promoted. And He will do it. So I look at the list of the fruit of the Spirit. It's a tough list. I had a plaque that hung up on my wall when I was a kid that had the fruit listed out there. And I remember as most people looking at the list and thinking, okay, well, we'll start with one I know I can do. Trying to find one on the list. And finding, no matter how proficient I might be in one fruit, there was other fruit that I was sorely lacking. So we come to it this morning, and I've read over it and over it and over it, and thinking about it and recognizing the value here, and what we're really being told. And it comes right at the end of Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia, where he is talking about grace and not works. And so for us to take the fruit of the Spirit and make a new list of works, we have failed in understanding what the Apostle was trying to get across from the very beginning. The fruit of the Spirit. Did you know there are over 7,500 cultivars of apple? A cultivar, a a variety, a a strain, if you will, of apples. There's Honeycrisp and Fuji Fuji and Cameo and Pink Lady and even Crab. You've got your Brayburn, your Granny Smith, your Macintosh, your Microsoft. I mean, all kinds out there. But of these 7,500 different varieties, they all derive from one apple tree. And botanists will tell you this. It all goes back to the Malus Siversi, which is an apple tree that is still growing both wild and cultivated in Central Asia today. It all comes from that one place. In the same way, the fruit of the Spirit, apparent in multiplied millions of human cultivars, comes from a single source. The fruit of the Spirit comes, listen, of the Spirit. It is His fruit. It is His to promote. It is His to cultivate. Now, the word fruit in both Greek and English is a collective singular word. That is, no one using proper English says, hey, what a nice bowl of fruits. You say that's a nice bowl of fruit. And we speak of fruit in what, again, is called the collective singular. And with the fruit of the Spirit, there's only one Spirit, and all of the fruit is of Him. All of the fruit comes from Him. Without Him, no fruit of the Spirit. Without Him, it's deeds of the flesh. So if you would desire to see the fruit of the Spirit in your life, to develop the fruit of the Spirit in your life, there's very little you can do to develop it because He's the developer. He's the promoter. He's the giver of the fruit. And this is all in keeping with what we've learned of grace so far in this letter. Have you ever wondered why you could be joyful and impatient almost at the same time? How you can in one moment be self-controlled and in the next be striving and all within five minutes of each other? 
how the, the fruit seems to look glorious in one moment and rotten in the next. And we all experience this. As soon as I've got a handle on one, I see the mess of another. That's because it's not your fruit. It's His. In the passage before us, the fruit of the Spirit, verses 22 and 23, is in stark contrast to what Paul has just described, and we looked at it more in depth on Wednesday night, and that is the deeds of the flesh. Dirty deeds. And they're done dirt cheap. (laughs) And Paul ends the list of the deeds of the flesh by, note this, he says, and things like these. In other words, the list is a whole lot longer than I've got ink to write. And you can add on to the list and continue the list, the dirty deeds of the flesh, indicating many, many more. But listen, neither list is exhaustive. Don't think that simply the fruit of the Spirit involves nine varieties and that's it. No, in fact, the work of the Spirit and the produce of the Spirit in our lives is far more And abounds even far beyond, I believe, the nine that are listed here. I like to go back to Isaiah chapter 11. And listen to the description of the the sevenfold characteristics of the Holy Spirit. Living Mentioned there, Isaiah 11 verse 1 tells us, A shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. That branch, that stem is none other than Jesus Christ. And so in this prophecy of Messiah, Isaiah says, The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and strength. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. These are all fruit of the Spirit, if you will. Varieties of the Spirit in Messiah. Seven listed there. In Isaiah 11.2. Now, by the way, if you go read that, you might be confused because it looks like there's just six. If you see that, then you're forgetting the Spirit of the Lord is Himself a characteristic of God. Because God is Spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in Spirit and Truth. And I like to compare this, and actually in my Bible I've got a little drawing of a menorah right next to Isaiah 11.2. Because as you look at the list and it's described there, the Spirit of the Lord is like the central shaft of the lampstand in the temple. And then you've got wisdom and understanding counsel and strength, knowledge and the fear of the Lord, not six, but seven lamps, which is the sevenfold characteristics of the Holy Spirit on Messiah. The mystery of the cultivation of the fruit of the Spirit, of the characteristics of the Spirit, is that it describes the very nature of God. And that's what you look at when you see the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. What you are seeing manifest before your eyes is the character traits of God Himself. This is a picture of the nature of our Father. Now we're going to focus in on the fruit. I'm not going to do it like a nine-point sermon and we'll just take one at a time and break it down. I'm not going to do that. We'll end up looking at it all. But I want to understand it more. I want to take more of a, I guess, a holistic view of the fruit of the Spirit this morning. And to do so, and to begin with, I want to repose a question. There's a question that I asked on Wednesday night. And the question is, what does law have to do with fruit? You see, at the end of verse 23, after listing out the nine varieties, Paul writes, against such things there is no law. 
Against such things there is no law. Why list out the fruit of the Spirit and then say, against such things there is no law? Because the law has nothing to do with the fruit of the Spirit. Nothing to do whatsoever. That's kind of the point. I mean, what Paul's saying here is that no lawmaker in his right mind would bar these sweet traits. In fact, the reason we have law is to promote things like the fruit of the Spirit. The reason why we put restrictions on humanity is we are so good at the deeds of the flesh. But you wouldn't have someone come out and say, No love allowed. Because there is no law against love. Oh, there are laws against lust, though some these days would break those down. But there is no law against love. The opposite today is the problem because lawlessness is increased. The love of most will grow cold. So there are no laws against the fruit of the Spirit. What legislator would say, all joy is henceforth banned? Democrats would say Trump is trying to do that. What lawmaker would say, peace, forget it. Patience, who needs that? I mean, go down the list. There is no law regarding any of the fruit of the Spirit. Because these are traits for which people desperately hunger and thirst. Yes, even in a sinful world. Even the sinner wants to be more patient. Even the corrupt person desires to be loved. And so this list has nothing to do with law, because law has to do with deeds, and these are fruit. And that, I believe, even before looking at the list, is the great contrast. And we started to get into this midweek. The great contrast is between deeds and fruit. Paul is contrasting that which needs regulating, the deeds of the flesh, with that which cannot be regulated, and that is the fruit of the Spirit. Deeds versus fruit. In the Greek, deeds is ergon. And and ergon literally means work, labor, or effort. The work of the flesh. The heavy lifting, if you will, of the flesh. The labor of the flesh. Fruit. Fruit is the word karpos. And karpos means produce, or crop, or harvest. The fruit of the Spirit. Think about those two. Deeds are performed. And again, they're done dirt cheap. Deeds are performed. Fruit is produced by the value of the Spirit. Deeds are behavior. Fruit is character. Deeds are heavy labor. Fruit is grown and most often in restful seasons by quiet waters. Of the deeds of the flesh, the Bible writes, Genesis 3.19, By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, and you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And that is a curse upon the deeds of the flesh. And in the flesh we will work by the sweat of the brow. Contrast that with the fruit of the Spirit. Described this way, Jeremiah 17, verse 7, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. And whose trust is in the Lord. He will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green. It will not be anxious in a year of drought, nor cease to yield fruit. Deeds of the flesh, hard, laborious work. 
the fruit of the Spirit cultivated simply through the trust of God. So understand here that the fruit of the Spirit is not a list of goals for you to cultivate. It's not a list of deeds for us to develop and produce in and of ourselves. Remember, only flesh can produce flesh. Actually, flesh can only produce flesh. Spirit can produce flesh and Spirit produces Spirit. So if you want the fruit of the Spirit, it is only something the Spirit can produce. By the way, Greek scholars among us, the root word of fruit, karpos, is an interesting word. It's harpazo. And harpazo is the word we have for rapture. 1 Thessalonians 4.17 We will be caught up, harpazoed together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we shall always be with the Lord. And you might ask, ask, ask yourself, what does rapture have to do with fruit? Hey, both are something you can't do. You can no more raise yourself up, catch yourself up into the heavens than you can produce the fruit of the Spirit. You need the Spirit of God to do that. It's His work. What's my part in it? See, that's the first place we go. What do I do? That's the flesh talking. So do me a favor this morning and tell the flesh to shut up. (laughs) And let's pay attention to the fruit of the Spirit. Man, talk about getting picked. Harpos, harpazo. It's beyond us. I want to point out uh, just three fruit facts, if you will from verses 22 and 23 that will help our understanding. And I'll give them to you ahead of time. They are origination, organization, and operation. Origination, organization, and operation. First off, the origination of cultivation. We know that the source of the fruit is the Spirit, but He originates all of the fruit, all the cultivation from one primary trait. The fruit of the Spirit is love. That's the origin of all the rest of the fruit. And by the way, it's not just first on the list. In fact, in the way it's written in the Greek, it's apparent that love is the primary characteristic from which all the rest of the fruit branches out. Love would be the malice, sever, severi, severi, whatever it is, what I said before, you know, where all the apples come from? That's love. The rest of the fruit would be the Brayburns and the, and the cameos, right, and the Honeycrisp and all the others. But there is an original fruit, and the original fruit is love itself. Paul doesn't say the fruit of the Spirit are, and then right in the plural, the fruit of the Spirit are... Love, joy, peace, patience. He says the fruit of the Spirit is love. And the rest will branch out from there. Without love, we cannot know joy or peace. Without love, there is no patience or kindness or goodness. And it's love that sows the seeds of faithfulness, gentleness, and yes, even self-control. That's something, teenagers, that's something actually our entire culture needs to understand That without love there is no self-control. Which is why there's so much lust. But true love promotes self-control. All these things come from the fruit of love. If you would, turn quickly back a couple of books to 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13, which we studied and looked at and considered before. it's It's a marvelous chapter. It is that love chapter. 
And in it, Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I'm nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. And then he goes on to give the characteristics of love, which I would submit to you are the varieties of the fruit of love. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love does not brag. Love is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And love never fails. And if you would go through this, read through it and consider 1 Corinthians 13, you will find all of the fruit of the Spirit paralleled in that teaching. Because love is the origin. Love is the primary fruit. It's the framework in and upon which all the spiritual gifts function, which is why Paul sandwiches love between 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14. This is the heart. This is the meat of the sandwich, if you will. This is the value. You know, at the end of the sandwich, when the bread's kind of getting a little old, and you've come to the crust, and you really don't want to finish it, how many times do you just pull the meat out and finish that off? Because that's the good stuff. And Paul says it's love. Greater than the gifts, and I would submit even greater than all the other fruit, because the rest of the fruit cannot exist without the fruit of love, which is the primary fruit of the Spirit. Why? It has to be that way. Because God, the primary central focus of the nature of God is love. The Bible tells us this. God is love. Love is not God. Remember that. That's what our culture teaches. Our culture has made love an idolatrous thing. Love is God. you got to let people do whatever they want. If, if you don't, you're not loving. Well, that's not the truth. God is love. 1 John 4, 8, The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. 1 John 4, 16, We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God, for God abides in Him. And the first and greatest thing God has done is reveal Himself to us by His love. It is His love that draws us to Him in the first place. And it is His love that was proven on the cross of Jesus. Romans 5, verse 5. Paul said the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God is love. And thus the primary fruit of His Spirit is love. And you cannot, by the way, look at the cross of Christ and not see love. It is the proof The only way you can do that is if your heart is as hard as hard pan soil. If the heart is stony hard, rock hard, 
well then perhaps you can look at the cross and not understand. Love is the prime root. Unconditional, agape love. God's love, and it is fruitfully empowering. Back in Galatians chapter 5, look at verse 13. Draw back just a little bit and listen to this. Paul writing, you were called to freedom, brethren. Remember we saw that last week. It was for freedom that Christ set us free from what's behind us. That freedom that goes both ways. You were called, verse 13, to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. The whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And we learned this Wednesday that in the Greek, it's not just through love, serve one another. It's through the love, serve one another. The love. What love? God's love. The only way I truly can serve you is through the love. And Paul challenges And Paul commands that we are to, through the love, serve one another. And so the fruit of the Spirit is love. That's where the cultivation begins. You want to do something in the cultivation of the fruit of the Spirit? You go straight to the origination. You go to love. You love Jesus. You just love Jesus with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. But what's amazing is that I say, okay, I'm going to go do that. Well, the only way I can do that is if the love of God is poured out into my heart by the Holy Spirit. So He gives me the love to go love. Pray for the love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. That's the origination of the cultivation. Secondly, the organization of the cultivation, and I find this fascinating. That what the Holy Spirit has done here in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, through the Apostle, is He's organized the fruit of the Spirit into three triads. Three bowls, if you will. Three baskets of three fruits each. Three varieties, three baskets, totaling nine. And I think that's beautiful. It's not still life. It is life alive. It is, well, the biblical number of resurrection. Nine fruit, three, three, and three. And every time you see three in the Bible, remember that Jesus raised on the third day. Look throughout the Scriptures at the use of the number three and how often it is connected to life and resurrection. And that's what we're talking about with the fruit of the Spirit. This is life. Three bowls of of fresh fruit, if you will, for life and health and vitality. And by the way, if you want a mnemonic device, if you want to be able to remember the fruit of the Spirit, to really get them down, it's very simple. The three bowls are one syllable, two syllable, and three syllables. Just remember it that way. First bowl, love, joy, peace, one syllable each. Second bowl, patience, kindness, goodness, two syllables each. Third bowl, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, three syllables each. Doesn't work in the Greek, but thank you, Lord, for the English. It works beautifully. But why are they so grouped? Why 3, 3, and 3? And is there intention behind this? And I absolutely believe there is. Understand that all nine varieties of the fruit of the Spirit interact at some level in all three categories. So we can't be absolutely dogmatic, but we can see distinctions among each of the triads. There is a focus. 
Love, joy, peace is what I would call Godward fruit. Godward fruit. That is, all three express our relationship to and with God. It was Alexander McLaren who wrote, They regard nothing but God and our relation to Him. They would be all the same if there were no other men in the world, or if there were no world, love, joy, and peace. All in relation to God. Now we've already talked about the origination of love. What about joy? What about joy? I found this article, LiveScience.com, Seven Things That Will Make You Happy. And I thought, oh good, science has finally figured that out. <laughs> Listen to this list. Seven things to make you happy. And sadly, some pastor somewhere may even be using these for a sermon. I don't know. I hope not. Here they are. Number one, get culture. Get culture. That will make you happy. It's not working real well for Hollywood. For, for the actors and, and the... Anyway. Number two, get a dog. There are plenty of times my dog does not make me happy. Number three, be grateful. Okay, I like that. That's got some biblical significance. Number four, be altruistic. Do good stuff. Number five, get nostalgic. It's the stupidest list I've ever read. Number six, have sex. It's not my list. It was. It's, I had to. It's on the list. You want to be happy? Here's what you do. And then number seven, the best one. Don't focus on being happy. I mean, that is the best the world has to offer. That's the kind of thinking that goes on. You know what the Bible says? Psalm 32, verse 10, Many are the sorrows of the world, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. Shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. You want true, deep, abiding joy? It's the fruit of the Spirit. It comes of the Spirit of God, and it only comes in a relationship with God Himself. Which is why it's a Godward fruit. Without the Lord, we will never know true joy. Oh, we might have fleeting happiness, that which a dog can give you when you're petting him and his little tail's wagging before he goes and pees on your new sofa. <laughs> and we may have happiness for a while when we sit back and think of childhood until we come back into real life and what we have to deal with today. All these things, they might bring fleeting happiness, but Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10 says, Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Joy. I mean, that's what I want. Not this happiness. John 15, 11, Jesus said, These things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Which is why love, joy, and peace are a Godward goal. Why they draw us to the Lord and are developed and cultivated only in trusting the Lord and in His relationship with me. And so Paul writes, Philippians 4, 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I will say, Rejoice! And what about peace? 
Love, joy, peace. I find them in this same triad. Well, Philippians 4, 6 says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of who? The peace of God, which can only be found in a relationship with God. Outside of that triad, there is no peace. And so Colossians 3.15, Paul writes, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. The peace of God? The peace of Christ? 2 Thessalonians 3.16, Paul writes, Now may the Lord of peace Himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. Love, joy, peace are all Godward fruit. Second triad. Patience, kindness, and goodness are manward fruit. In other words, I need you to express this fruit. I need you to experience this fruit. We need one another. Romans 15 verse 5, Paul says, Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. Patience. You teach me, I teach you. Patience. It is in manward, human word relationships that we develop patience. Or truly that the Spirit develops patience in us. And and kindness and goodness, these are things that become manifest in a relationship with other people. It's patient endurance with one another, which, by the way, we see all of this modeled so beautifully in Jesus. And in His relationships with people. When I think of patience, I often go to to this place, to Mark chapter 9. And Jesus coming down the mountain after the transfiguration, which if you've never read the story, read Mark 9, read Matthew 17. Absolutely stunning moment where He goes up the mountain and Jesus is seen momentarily in His glorified state by Peter and James and John. And He's there and He's talking with Moses and Elijah. It's a spiritual moment that is absolutely profound. And after this highlight of ministry that these three guys get to see and experience, and Jesus Himself, can you imagine how encouraging that was for Him? To have a chat with Moses and Elijah and to be transfigured into just absolute purity and and to be seen that way. Well, He comes down the mountain after that glorious moment, only to find the disciples in a heated argument with Jewish scribes. A complete row has broken out over a father with a son who is demon-possessed. And what Jesus walks into is this mess of argument. This father brought his son to Jesus' disciples for healing, and a shouting match breaks out. Well, that's beautiful ministry. The fight's going on. Jesus walks right into the middle of it. Meanwhile, the demonic boy is, I assume, writhing on the ground while they're fighting it out. Mark 9.19, Jesus says, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? And what's the first thing Jesus does? Bring the boy to me. He doesn't even address the arguing. 
Bring the boy to me. Don't you think in that moment you might be tempted to roll your eyes back in your head and say, Do you know what I was just doing? Do you have any idea who I was just talking to? And this is what I come back to? All I want, you can almost hear a mother saying, is for you kids to get along. (laughs) That's what I want for Christmas this year, you kids to get along. That's what I would think. I see Jesus saying, that's it, I'm out, I'm done. Father, bring me home. (laughs) Bye-bye. But what we see is the patience of the Spirit. Patiently, kindly, with goodness, Jesus, He increases the Father's faith. He heals the boy. And later that day, Mark 9.28, when He came into the house, His disciples began questioning Him privately, Why couldn't we drive it out? My own inflection. (laughs) And He said to them, listen, He said to them, This kind cannot come out by anything but prayer and fasting. And what's marvelous about that response is when they say, why couldn't we drive it out? Jesus didn't say, because you're a bunch of argumentative idiotas. Because you're stupid. Because you just, because you're deeds in the flesh, that's all it is. Jesus says this kind can only come out by prayer and fasting. Well, what is prayer and fasting? It's patience. It's patience. You want to move in the ministry to which I'm calling you? Guess what? It's going to require patience, prayer, fasting. While you're rushing in where angels fear to tread, Jesus says, how about pausing and praying with patience? And He explains to them the necessity of patience. Patience, kindness, goodness, all necessary fruit for healthy relationships in the body of Christ. All worked out as we live with each other. By the way, in that second triad, what's the difference between kindness and goodness? I mean, they seem awfully similar, and truly, in the Greek, they are synonyms. The Greek word for kindness, the word for goodness. Now, kindness does seem to indicate more external activity. It's more the action, whereas goodness is the virtue that yields the kindness. So you can use either word, and they go hand in hand, but one is more the virtue, and the other is more the action. And again, these all describe God's nature. Patience and kindness and goodness. As in Paul's description of the grace of God in Ephesians chapter 2, where he says, Ephesians 2.6, God raised us up with Jesus. He seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And Ephesians 5.8, Paul said, You who were formerly darkness now are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. So the first basket is Godward. The second triad is manward in its function. And thirdly, and please listen carefully on this one, the third basket, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, I would say is inward fruit. Godward, manward, inward. But don't misunderstand 
this inward fruit. Listen to it again. It is faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But it's not just about navel-gazing. It's not just about sitting around and, you know, drawing into yourself. No, it is inward fruit. Note this, that is necessary in an oppositional world. Inward fruit, necessary in an oppositional world. Jesus said, if the world hates you, you know it hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of this world. Because of this, the world hates you. And so, faithfulness, which is also long-suffering. Some have described it a long obedience in the same direction. Faithfulness and gentleness and, of course, self-control. These are necessary as Inward fruit in an oppositional world. I need this to get by as a follower of Jesus in today's day and age. Because the deeds of the flesh are at work all around and against me, and I even tend to engage when I'm not trusting in the Lord. Now again, with each of these nine varieties, you can take the time and draw into them and think them through and process more, and I encourage you to do that. That's not my purpose today. In fact, oftentimes I think my purpose in teaching is more to whet appetites so that you will go home and feed. And so I encourage you to do that. But I want you to look back one more time at the deeds of the flesh that are against us. 519, immorality. That's sexual immorality of all kinds, of all nature, of all manner. It's not limited. Impurity, sensuality, idolatry, Sorcery, which is, I mentioned Wednesday, pharmakia. It's also drugs. So I don't care if it's legal or not. Is it biblical? Enmities, strife, jealousies, outbursts or explosions of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. And so if you want to know how to live for Christ in a messed up world like that, going to need gentleness. You're going to need gentleness. You won't save anyone with a harsh word. Evangelism is not the art of attack. True evangelism is the art of love as displayed in a gentle spirit. You're going to need faithfulness because God has called us to see this through to the very end. And guess what? I can't. But He can. Remember, the fruit is of the Spirit. And He pours into me His faithfulness because He can't deny Himself. He is faithful. He pours that into me and therefore I become faithful because I'm trusting in Him and He is faithful. And I need that faithfulness in this oppositional world. Gonna need self-control. Especially when the deeds of the flesh call out and rile up the flesh that is still within me. Do you realize that's how it works? That's how Satan works in this world. The deeds of the flesh around us, they call to the flesh within us. They appeal to that fleshly appetite, to that fleshly nature, and in the flesh we respond, man, I'm going to need self-control, and I don't have it, but He does. It's the fruit of the Spirit. (laughs) Without the uh, fruit of self-control that he gives, I'll end up arguing with the scribes while the demon-possessed boy writhes on the ground and the father cries out in his hopelessness, I will be ineffective without the self-control that the Spirit brings.
Now, how is it again that I cultivate such characteristics? The origination of all the fruit is love. The organization of the fruit, we see it in those three bowls, those three baskets or triads. And finally, number three, the operation of cultivation. And truly, there is only one thing that you or I can do to see the fruit of the Spirit operational in us. Only one thing, and it's one word, abide. Abide. Turning your Bibles back to John 15. We'll finish there. John chapter 15. John chapter 15, verse 1. Jesus has just come out of the upper room with the apostles. Perhaps at this point they're making their way down and across the Kidron Valley up to the Mount of Olives to Gethsemane. So you know what's happening here when he says this? It's thought by some that Jesus, as they're walking out from the temple, looks up at the temple and sees on either side of the huge doorway and the pillars at the front of the temple that, that, glorious, that glorious fruit that Herod placed as his own gift to the temple. Pure gold clusters of grapes and vines wrapping around the top. Glistening there. And Jesus says in John 15 verse 1, I am the true vine. And my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, He prunes it so it may bear more fruit. Now, hang on a second. You need to understand that He's talking about branches in Him. And when you see the phrase, every branch in me, so this is followers of Jesus, believers in Christ, everyone in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. Oh, He throws to hell? No. The phrase, He takes away, is iro in the Greek, and it means He lifts up. Which is what any intelligent vine dresser is going to do. You don't leave the vines on the ground to rot. You lift them up on a fence or a trellis so that they can get oxygenated and they can get watered and they can grow. So if you are in Christ Jesus and you're not bearing fruit, He lifts you up so that you will bear fruit. And every branch that bears fruit, He prunes it so it may bear more fruit. And that word for pruning is literally He washes it. He cleanses it. He makes it fruit worthy to bear even more fruit. And then He says in verse 3, You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Verse 4, here's the key, the operation. Abide in Me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in Me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in Me and I in Him, He bears much fruit. For apart from Me, you can do nothing. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. It comes by the abiding grace of God through Jesus. So abide in Him. I think this is, this is the key throughout the letter. Abide in Him. Allow His grace to work in you. Your focus, your position, my issue is to keep my eyes on Jesus. 
Kirsten Tyhouse came in on Friday morning. She teaches over at, at CC that we have here at the, at the bridge. They meet here. Classical conversations. It's, it's kids' school. You've got to show up on Friday. It's, it's just nuts over here. It's wonderful. The place is a buzz with little people running around screaming and yelling and me trying to finish my sermon. <laughs> Love, joy, peace. <laughs> and the door... My door, there's a knock and it opens up and, and it's Naomi, my daughter, and I'm studying on the fruit of the Spirit. And Naomi comes in and I go, Naomi, you know that I... And I see Kirsten right behind her. Hi! <laughs> and she said, God woke me up early this morning and told me to give this to you. And she handed me three pages of like 12 font type. And I'm like, oh, okay. And of course I set it aside because I have more important things to do. No, she handed it to me, and, and I said, thanks. And I had, went back downstairs, and I began to read it. And to see what the Lord had told her, which was what He was saying to me. And just absolutely confirmed everything that I had been studying and thinking through, and, and gave, gave heart to it. And part of what she wrote, and I, just, I, I asked her permission for this, just this part of it I wanted to share with you. She wrote this, from the Lord, to miss both saving grace and living grace is to miss out on all Christ life. I can't help but think about how dependence on Jesus is the Christ life. I keep thinking about how grace is a moment-by-moment dependence upon Christ for each new thing we face. And then she quoted John 15:5, Without Him, I can do nothing. Because the fruit of the Spirit is His fruit, His Spirit. If you want the Christ life, abide in Jesus. And He'll cultivate the fruit in you. Let's pray about that. Father, what an awesome, awesome thought that we might bear fruit that You have implanted. That we might actually be a people who have love and joy and peace in our relationship with You. That we might express patience and kindness and goodness, even, Father, in our relationships with one another. And that we might be graced with gentleness and faithfulness and self-control in such an oppositional world. Father, thank You for Your grace. Because the fruit of Your Spirit, Father, it truly is Your grace poured out on us. Father, we need a mind shift, a paradigm shift to move away from straining and striving in the deeds of the flesh to receiving the fruit of the Spirit through abiding in You. Father, abide with us and help us to abide in You. In Jesus' name, Amen.